1741, Jonathan Edwards preached these words in the sermon, one of the most famous sermons in American history, by the way, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Listen to what he said. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath has provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. And you have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you've ever done. And nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. According to Dr. R. Kent Hughes, Senior Pastor Emeritus of the College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, which in 2006 was considered to be the 37th most influential Protestant church inside the country. I mean, this is a, this is a pulpit. This is like if you want to be a guest speaker somewhere, this is like you want to get invited to this church. So I haven't arrived yet to be able to do that. But according to Dr. Kent Hughes, in his commentary uh, on Hebrews, he writes about Jonathan Edwards here. And it said, it is commonly thought by those who have only a passing recognition of Jonathan Edwards that his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was preached with sadistic glee to his bewildered congregation. The supposition is that Edwards enjoyed afflicting his people and that the sermon was preached with pulpit-pounding vehemence. Such thinking is wide of the mark. Shouting was not Edwards' style, like it is your pastor's. It is a matter of historical fact that Edwards quietly read his sermons from tiny pieces of paper held up in front of him. Neither did Edwards enjoy such preaching. It was rather necessitated by the famous halfway covenant, an earlier Puritan example to keep as many people as possible under the influence of the church though they were not professed believers. The church in Enfield, where he was at when he wrote the sermon, contained baptized unbelievers who were barred from the Lord's table. Ultimately, Edwards was dismissed as pastor over the question of admission of the unconverted to the Lord's Supper. Edwards was preaching for their souls and also against the follies of a halfway covenant. Edwards' intense concern joins him in the heart with, in heart with the preacher who wrote the heat to the Hebrews some 1,700 years earlier. The stakes were identical, heaven or hell, and the symptoms, though not identical, were similar as well. A declining regard for the church's authority, a willfulness to define one's relationship to the church in one's own terms, and, in some cases, quitting the church altogether. To such was addressed the thunderous warnings in verses 26 to 31, in which the brilliant writer summons his own prodigious logic and literary talents. So think about that. We're going to come back to this, to this part again. I want to tell you which part we're coming back to. The symptoms that the author of Hebrews was writing towards and that Jonathan Edwards was preaching towards. A declining regard for the church's authority a willfulness to define one's relationship to the church in one's own terms, and in some cases, quitting the church altogether. 
And this is what we're going to talk about today as we look at apostasy. What is apostasy? Part 2. Our scriptures for today, out of the same passage, same general vicinity, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 27. And so if you'll open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 27, we'll read those together. Now, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. You might be reading from something like the NIV or the King James Version or the NASB. That's okay. They're all just translations of the Greek. So there might be little variances in wording, but that doesn't mean that, that you have a bad Bible. Okay? So let's read those together. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we learned last week that this for in the beginning of the sentence connects it to the thought in he- that we just said, right? For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Again, one of the toughest places in the New Testament, this passage of Scripture. We've devoted several weeks to it. The only places that it is tougher in the New Testament, that there are harsher warnings in the New Testament, are the places where Jesus himself says stuff like many will say to me on that day lord lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and heal people in your name and he said i will say to them depart from me for i never knew you that's the only place that the warnings get any tougher and and this is again my heart in this and jonathan edwards heart in this and dr Hughes's heart in this it is not a sadistic glee it's if we understand the dangers, then grace actually becomes amazing. So as you read, as you go through this sermon today, as you read these passages of homework that I'm going to give you at the end, understand the dangers so that grace will truly be amazing. Let's pray. Father, you're a good God. Jesus, you're a good God. Holy Spirit, You're a good God. You're pure. You're wonderful. You're amazing. And we praise you and thank you for your goodness. We ask today that you would give us open minds and open hearts as we look at this passage one last time before moving on. Father, help us to understand what apostasy is. Help us to understand what it is that you want us to hear today from you. Help us to grow in our faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said, amen. Before we prayed, I concluded with Dr. Hughes' suggestion that the author of Hebrews was addressing symptoms of the spiritual condition in the lives of the believers, such as a declining regard for the church's authority, a willfulness that defines one relationship to the church in one's own terms, and in some cases, quitting the church altogether. But is Dr. Hughes basing this in the passage, or has he come to this conclusion elsewhere? That's a really strong question that we need to ask. Is Dr. Hughes, just because it's the 37th most influential church in America, 
doesn't mean that he's basing this in the scriptures. We need to wrestle with that. You need to wrestle with that with every single sermon you hear, with every single Bible study that you partake of, with every single book that you read. Is this based in God's word? Or is this what somebody just wants to say? Everything that we do as believers should be held up against what is written in the scriptures. The problem is, is that it has to be held up against the full canon of the scriptures, not just one particular verse here and there. That's why I give you guys homework every week. That's as much so that you can check me to see if I'm a moron versus just for your own reading pleasure. You need to read up and see, is my pastor actually preaching biblical stuff or is this just his fancy? Is this just his stuff? Right? My job as a pastor is to equip you to rightly divide the word of truth. So we're going to hold this up and we're going to see, okay, did Dr. Hughes pull this out of context or is this what the passage actually says? That the author of Hebrews had a concern about the continued spiritual and health and condition of his readers, well, that part's beyond question, right? I mean, clearly he wrote the scriptures or she wrote the scriptures because they cared about the spiritual health and condition of the people, right? So that is beyond question. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But, but, is the rest of this actually in this passage, In verse 23, we see an exhortation for believers to hold fast to the Christian faith. You see that there in verse 23? Let us hold fast the confession of our, interestingly enough, and I didn't plan this, God did though, our hope, which is the first Advent word, right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The exhortation must come because of trials. Perhaps persecution. Because the author here is pointing out that the promiser, which is God, is faithful to fulfill his promise. Here's what I think. I think that probably what was going on was these, these people in this church or, or whoever the original audience was, the, these uh, Jewish Christians... They were not experiencing the promises of God the way they thought they should be. They had all of these promises about a life of fulfillment, about encouragement, all these different things, and they were not experiencing these things in the ways they thought they should be. Has anybody ever had that happen to them? Amen. I mean, God tells us he'll never leave us or forsake us. There's like five honest people in the whole place. So God says he'll never leave us or forsake us that we'll have the things that we need and all of these things. And yet we sit back and we struggle and sometimes we get mad at God. And I'm here to tell you, and I know, I know that this isn't good, that people kind of uh, balk at this. It's okay to get mad at God. Some of you just, your mind got blown just now. You're like, what? My pastor just said it's okay to get mad at God. It is okay to get mad at God. He can take it. He can take it. He can take it when you're confused, when you're angered, when you're upset. He can take it. He wants you to tell Him about it. 
He wants to carry your burdens. He wants to carry, he wants to take that anger away. He doesn't want you to get mad at him and stay mad at him. But it's okay to get mad at God, to be confused, to say, I don't understand why this is going on in my life. He's not going to cast you away from his presence because you express that to him. I think what's happening, these people are experiencing persecution, they're experiencing trials, they're experiencing all of these things. I mean, here they are in the Roman Empire. At this point, Christianity was still illegal. People were being taken into the Colosseum and being killed for their faith. That doesn't really look like this, uh, the kingdom of God come on the earth, does it? That we're being dragged in front of uh, lions and barbarians and, and dying for our faith. I mean, think about the book of Acts in chapter 6 of the book of Acts that Stephen is martyred. I think it's chapter 6. I could be giving the wrong chapter. Stephen is martyred for his faith. As he is dying, he looks up and he sees Jesus, a vision of Jesus, and he says, do not hold this sin against them. This doesn't look like uh, prosperity. This doesn't look like wholeness. This doesn't look like uh, the feel-good thing that we often hear. And this is what's happening in Christianity. I want to just tell you real quick what I believe, and this is a side, a side note. I think the most harmful thing that happened in Christianity around this time period was it becoming a legal religion inside of Rome, inside the Roman Empire. I believe when it became legal to be a Christian and it no longer cost people anything, the commitment level of the people coming into it was less and less and less and less and less. The church was flourishing when it was illegal. And a student, any student of church history will see that as soon as it became legal, it started to decline in faithfulness. Because people didn't have to take the thing serious anymore. I mean, let's just be honest with one another. When is the last time that somebody on American soil has been killed for their faith. I can't remember. I can't recall any time. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I don't know all of American history. But I can't recall anybody that's ever been martyred. Simply because they were a Christian. In the history of the United States. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not asking that, 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 the, that the government outlaw our religion. Okay. But. What's happening here. Is that they are in an outlawed religion. And there's persecution, there's trials and all of these things. And they're not realizing this, this messianic kingdom that they expected to come. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging them, do not give up your hope. Hold on to hope. Hold on to hope, church. Hold on to hope. This may not look like what you thought it was going to look like, but hold on to hope. So I think that there's an, ex, ex, an exhortation for believers to hold fast to the Christian faith. So that's clearly coming out of this passage. But what about Dr. Hughes' claim that some are disregarding legitimate spiritual authority that has been vested in the church? Does that come out of this passage? Verse 24 directs believers to submit to the spiritual authority of the church. 
Let's read that together. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, some of you might be struggling to go, how is that submitting to the authority that's vested in the church? Now, first of all, let me say this. I'm not talking about submitting to people who abuse their power. Some people avoid all submission to authority because some people have abused it. We are actually, as a Christian church in America, very afraid of using the word authority. It carries such a negative connotation because we've seen people abuse authority over and over and over again. But God sets up authority. He says there is no authority except for that which is from God. And at that point, he's talking about government authority. He's not afraid of the word authority. Submitting to the body as a whole holds each person accountable for loving one another and fervently serving the Lord. Submitting to the body as a whole. That's what this passage is about. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How does that happen if I'm not submitted to John? How can John stir me up to love and good works if I completely disregard everything that John says? If I'm like, well, I'm not under your authority. You can't say anything to me. If I can stir somebody up, that must mean I have some type of influence in their life. Amen? That there must be some kind of mutual submission to one another. That we can stir one another up to love and good works. That this isn't this solo thing where I go on. It doesn't say, and let us consider how to stir yourself up to love and good works. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up. Am I getting that from the text? Is that coming out of the text or am I making this up? Is it coming out of the text? Okay. So this is, now, see, here's the correction for abuse. And John has remarked that I like saying this. The correction for abuse is not disuse. That is not how you correct abuse. You correct abuse with proper use. Let me give you just a really simple, you know, worldly example. Right? If I have got my son and he is using my crescent wrench as a hammer, the correction for that is to not, is, is not to tell him you can't ever use the crescent wrench again. It's to teach him what a crescent wrench is supposed to be used for. We could do that with a torque wrench. We could do that with a soldering iron. We could do that with, a, with any tool that we think of. The correction for abuse is not disuse. It's proper use. And we know that. If my son's not treating my car or my daughter's not treating my car the way they should be when they're driving it, I'm not going to correct that by barring them from using it. I'm going to have to teach them how to use it properly. Now, don't get me wrong. I might bar them from using it. But that's not correcting their abuse. That's just taking it away. I have to teach them how to do it right. Amen? So the correction for abuse is not disuse, it's proper use. 
So this whole thing with authority, that is mutually submitting to one another's authority, this, the, the correction for this is not disuse. The correction for this is not to rebel against anybody being able to influence your life. The correction is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yes, I'm intentionally repeating myself. Here, let me say it a different way. It is to allow one another to speak into your life and actually take it to heart and consider what it might mean. Dr. Hughes also argued that uh, part of the problem was people defining their relationship to the church on their own terms. Perhaps even quitting the church altogether. Again, is this a reasonable conclusion to draw from the text? Verse 25 directly challenges those who redefine church relationships on their own terms or quit the church to, recons- and to or quit the church to reconsider their position as unscriptural. Look at what it says in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Think about that. Instead, we're to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. See, what's happening here is that people are redefining their relationship to the church on their own terms. And it is a big issue inside of the church in America right now. And you might be scratching your head going, what does it have to do with apostasy? Trust me, we're going to get there. Okay? Christianity is not a solo endeavor. It is not a home correspondence course. It was meant to be experienced in community with one another. And it is never meant to be experienced in isolation. It's never meant to be experienced in isolation. The author says here to not give up the habit of meeting together. To not neglect meeting together is the habit of some. It's never meant to be a solo endeavor. I promise you, I challenge any of you to do this. Find one place in the scripture, one place where it says that you're supposed to do this on your own. And I will stand up here and recant my whole sermon next Sunday in front of the entire congregation. You can't find it. It's not there. What's there, the stuff that's there, We are members of one body, individual members of one body. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this, and I'm going to just paraphrase what he said. He says, beware the person who cannot stand to be alone. And as he starts talking about this, it's like, okay, the person who feels like they have to do this in community. And he's going through this whole explanation about how if they can't, if they can't be alone, you need to be wary of them. You need to be concerned about them because if they can't be alone, that's a flag. But then he flips the coin over and he says, beware the one who isn't willing to be in community because you were called to a community of believers. He talks about each one of us standing individually before God, accounting for our lives. But then he talks about how we're to be a part of a community of believers. As an individual Christian, passages let each one use their gift for mutual edification, 
kind of goes out the window and has no application in the life of a solo believer. I'm not saying that sometimes, some places, there's not an individual believer who comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But as soon as they read Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, and the Lord speaks it into their heart that they're to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As soon as they start obeying that, they no longer are an individual. They become a community. First of two, then of three and four and five, and the community of faith grows. The good news was never meant to be kept to ourselves. Things like the fivefold ministry are impossible for an individual. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some shepherds, some teachers. Nobody has all of those callings. This whole idea of I can do it apart from the community of faith, it just isn't in this passage. And then it goes on. In the context of these issues, these are the issues that the author is bringing up. Hold fast to your hope. Submit to one another and stir one another up. And continue to meet together with one another. Comes the warning. For. The Greek word gar. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is not saying that Jesus' sacrifice was only worth so much and could only pay for so much. This is saying that if you continue on in things like this, that you've placed yourself outside of trusting that. He says, don't give up the hope. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. So what does all this mean? Last week we talked about the danger of apostasy in the sense of a total abandonment of orthodox beliefs i.e. people who once believed and even preached a message of faith only to abandon it for something non-Christian. That's people like Justin Vollmer, Rob Bell. But let's just be honest with one another. The chances that any of us are going to be on a national pulpit, including myself, are slim to none. Amen? Oh, (laughs) my hope's in Jesus. But... That's probably not going to happen, right? I'm, I'm probably never going to pastor this, a church of 5,000 or whatever. I'm probably never going to be on, on TV or anything like that. I'm not doing it to be on TV. If it happens, it happens. But I'm probably not going to be that guy. You're probably not going to be that guy or gal. Amen? So, what does apostasy have to do with us? Why should we be concerned about it? The author of Hebrews is not warning us of this total abandonment and preaching these false doctrines alone. The author of Hebrews is warning us of a subtler, perhaps even deadlier deception that may well lead to apostasy. The one that I think the average everyday Joe has to worry about. Noted commentator Emmy Isaacs suggests this passage is a warning or encouragement for those who have become a part of the church. And here's what Emmy Isaacs says. 
to continue to meet together for mutual support and to cultivate love and good works as their way of life. Because to abandon the community of faith is to place oneself beyond the efficacy of the new covenant sacrifice. Thus, the subtler danger of apostasy is leaving the church. Now, I want you to understand something. Because I'll get soundbited somewhere that I said that you can't be a Christian and be born again if you're not a part of OCCA. I am not saying that. The membership covenant that we just read during our service for Pam and Jess said, if you leave our congregation for righteous reasons, you need to fulfill your obligations as a believer in another congregation. There are many good healthy churches in our community that have people who are born again and going to be in heaven. OCCA does not have the market cornered on Jesus. Amen? So I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about somebody leaving OCCA for a righteous reason, God calling them to another congregation. They're apostate now. It's not what I'm saying. That's not what the author of Hebrews is saying. We're talking about people saying, I have no need for the local church. I'm a part of God's universal church, and so I don't need to be a part of a local church. We talked about it this morning in prayer time, and then we prayed about it. The idea of a soldier actually being a soldier but not part of an army is ludicrous. To be a soldier, you must be part of an army. To be a soldier of the cross, you must be part of an army. Armies have units. Sure, we've got the United States Army. It's the everybody's in that army that's in, that's in the United States Army. But not everybody was in the 101st Airborne Division, 501st Signal Battalion, Charlie Company. I was. To be a part of that larger army, I had to be a part of a, of a smaller army. Nobody was in Muxat Platoon. I was. Nobody was in my squad except for me and about 10 other guys. And my team was me and three other people. And I could not be a part of that larger army without being part of all of those smaller things. The funny thing is, it wasn't just when I worked in the 85 Bravo, which is the satellite van that I worked in, inside of Muxat Platoon, inside of Charlie Company, 501st Sigma Battalion. The same was true when I moved over to the S3 shop. And I know a lot of these things don't make sense, but you follow the illustration anyways. When I moved over to the S3 shop, which was at battalion headquarters, and I was the battalion school's NCO, which I was the guy responsible for getting everybody to all these different schools and getting them all signed up. And I was in this little squad of people inside of my platoon in HHC, which was headquarters and headquarters company. You see, we all have to be a part of of something small to be a part of the larger. Here is one of the deceptions that's going on, and and I I am not anti-army, okay? I'm fine with the United States military. But this is a problem in America that the army has started playing into. Think about the ad campaigns. To be an army of one. You cannot be an army of one. 
They get these guys to come and sign up to be an army of one. And then as soon as they signed up, they find out, no, I'm not an army of one. I am in this little squad, in this platoon, in this unit. I can't just go do whatever I want to. There's a chain of command. There's people that I have to submit to. When I'm out there on the battlefield, the guy in the foxhole next to me is depending on me to make sure that he doesn't die when the enemy's coming. I've got my intersecting uh, lane of fire with him. I've got my sector stakes here and here inside my foxhole, which means I can't turn my weapon further than this and I can't turn it further than this. But his lane of fire intersects with mine. And when I'm looking over here, he needs to be checking here. We are reliant upon one another. If this illustration isn't, isn't connecting with you all the way, if you are a veteran or currently serving in the military, would you please raise your hand? I want you to go talk to these guys. See if you can be a part of this without being part of a small team. It's impossible. It's the same way with the church. So when I'm talking about leaving the church, I'm saying that we quit the little thing and we say, I'm part of the big thing. Here's what I'm talking about. Here's what the danger is. Number one, I love Jesus. It's the church I can't stand. How many people have you heard say that? I've heard tons of people say that. Oh, I I love Jesus. I just can't stand the church. The Apostle John, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, says, That is impossible. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. Because he says it is impossible to love God who you do not see without loving your brother who you can see. John says that under the inspiration of the Spirit. Not Jerry. And when I say John, I don't mean John Spriggs or John Smith. I mean the Apostle John. The the disciple that Jesus loved. Amen? He said that. He said that. You can't do this. This is the danger. People say, I love Jesus. It's the church I can't stand. This is the danger of apostasy, the subtle danger. Or this one. I don't need to be a part of a local church. I'm part of God's universal church. How many people have you heard say that? I've heard tons say that over the years. I don't need to be a part of a local church. I'm part of the universal church. Guys, this goes back to the army illustration. God's church is local and universal. OCCA right now is is, is one company inside of a battalion, inside of a brigade, inside of a division, inside of the whole doggone thing. Even when I work at a division level, I'm still in a company. I still have a squad. I still have a supervisor. All of those things. It doesn't matter what level I'm at. I still have those things. So this is the other danger. Here's why it's dangerous. Living in isolation from the community of faith, i.e. the local church, puts us in grave danger of being picked off by the enemy of our souls. Isolation from the church was never part of God's plan for us. 
We get into grave error when we're isolated. We get into doctrinal error when we're isolated. I've seen isolated Christians in serious doctrinal error because they never have a a communication with anybody else about what a passage of Scripture means. They never submit to anybody else's teaching. They never sit down and talk with anybody else. They go at it solo. But the Scripture is very clear in Proverbs, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Two are better than one, and a three-strand cord is not quickly broken. I could go on. When we're in a community with one another, we, we keep each other from doctrinal error. Now, I'm not saying that a doctrinal error can never creep in because there are times when that happens. But it is more difficult when we are in a community of believers and other people are holding it up. Now, I understand something today and I want you to understand something. I realize that I'm preaching pretty much today to the choir. That you're all here. Y'all are a part of this. Y'all think this is a good thing. I got it. I'm wanting to encourage you to share this with other people. The message really is kind of to exhort you to go exhort them. Amen? Because you all are here. Amen? So this isn't like a, so you better keep coming. I mean, you better keep coming. No, I'm just kidding. But this is for you to encourage other people, to train and equip you. Because you know the people who are living in isolation. You probably have some people coming to your mind right now that have some kind of odd doctrinal beliefs that, that they got as they studied the Scriptures on their own and never talked it over with anybody else. We get an error in how we practice if we're isolated and alone. Let me give you the first error that jumps to my mind. We witness to people if we're in, if we're in it on our own, but then we have no church to help disciple them when they come to faith. No elders to guide them. And the scriptures tell us, as Christians, to submit to our elders. But if I'm not a part of a local body with any elders, I don't have any elders to submit to. I don't have any deacons who will help in those physical areas. I don't have this community of faith to mutually submit to. And so I get into these practice errors. There's no pastors. There's no fivefold ministry, like I told you earlier. That's out of Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. The fivefold ministry, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. If I'm out there by myself, I can't have those as a practice in my life. Because I'm by myself. I can't even receive communion in a right way when I'm by myself. Paul addresses this in his, in his epistles to the Corinthians about when they come together is to be mutually edifying and people are to, to wait for one another and to love one another in this time of communion. I can't even do that without at least another person. Now, some of you might take communion sometimes at home with your family. I'm not saying that's unbiblical. I'm saying you're doing it with your family. You're not by yourself. You're celebrating Christ together which is part and parcel to the Christian faith, to celebrate together. The word church is from the Greek word ekklesia, and it means those who are called out or in an assembly. Indicative in the definition of this word is a group. It's a group. 
not an individual. I'm a big proponent of church membership. That's one of the things that uh, Ron and the elders have brought up. They said they've never really had anybody, uh, a pastor, that they can remember teach on membership and, and be such a proponent of membership inside the local body. And people wonder why. It's not about having a big role. It's about people mutually committing to one another. If we were a church of 50, I would be just as big a proponent of membership as a church of 200. It doesn't matter to me. Membership says I commit. Jeff and Pam today committed. Jeff and Pam, I take it very serious what you did today. And I know you do too. And and you've done it with a lot of consideration. Am I willing to commit? It's a commitment thing. And let's just be honest with one another. Commitment in our country right now is not a real popular thing. That's why people live together and don't get married. Right? Because I want to be able to walk away from this thing real easy. But when you stand up and say, I'm a member. When you say, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to commit to you and to love you. That's a huge step. And we don't take that very easily. But see, I know when people are members that they're not going to bail on me the first time that I act like an idiot, which is really good because I act like an idiot quite often. There, there's sometimes stuff comes out of my mouth that as soon as it comes out of my mouth, I'm like, boy, I wish my filter would have caught that. Right? But I know they're mutually committed to one another and to me. That's why our membership covenant says at the end, I covenant to do the following, should I leave the church for righteous reasons, to notify the appropriate staff member, and to seek another church with which I can carry out my biblical responsibilities as a believer. See, you don't have to be a member of OCCA. But you should be a member somewhere. You should be committed somewhere. You should say, this is my church. Because Jesus tells us to commit to a body. There are times when people leave for righteous reasons. I have left two churches for righteous reasons. The first church was hard pastors who knew that i was leaving asked the guy who took over for me did he get fired they said no they couldn't believe that i was leaving a church that was still growing while i was there he had to have gotten fired who would step out of that the lord told him to move they couldn't understand that they thought it was crazy but the lord called me on there are going to be times when god calls us to move around Many years ago, Fran was called from one congregation to serve another congregation. And he's been here for now over 20 years. Lord called him to move and be a part of something different. Many of you, that's your story. You didn't come to saving faith at OCCA. You came to saving faith somewhere else. And the Lord called you to move. And many of you had very righteous reasons for moving. And you weren't afraid to tell people, I'm moving because the Lord's calling me on. You weren't afraid to go to the pastor. You weren't afraid to go to people and say, the Lord's calling me to move. 
there are righteous reasons to move. But church, I can't think of a righteous reason to ever leave the church. To say, I'm not going to submit to a particular local body. Because Jesus doesn't leave that up to us. He tells us to be a part of a body. See, this danger of apostasy, this this leaving the church and not being a part of it, I think it becomes a danger of apostasy because when we get isolated and alone, the enemy can get to us and he can pick us off. And it's so easy for him to pick us off when we're isolated and alone. It's easy for him to devour us. The scriptures tell us that he walks around like a roaring lion looking for whosoever he may devour. So the danger of apostasy that we should be worried about is, is being isolated and alone where the enemy can pick us off. What I'm trying to say is love the people that you're around enough that you'll commit to them, that you'll walk through this with them, that when their arms are drooping, that you will love them enough to pick up their sagging arms so that the Amalekites cannot beat them or Amalekites or however you want to pronounce it. Guys, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Go read the Old Testament story where where Moses' arms had to be held up to win the battle. It was when a couple of brothers gathered around him and held him up. We're meant to do this in community. I don't want you to be devoured by the enemy. For those of you who came last Sunday night to the community service, you heard about when I was at my last church that I was pastoring, how a lot of that I was alone and on my own and how I, and even though there was a group of people surrounding me, I wasn't really part of the family. They didn't really accept me as part of the family and I was struggling and how that's not the case here and how much different it is to know that you're not alone. But I don't want you to believe me. That's why I give you homework. Homework this week, Monday. Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is God's design for the church. God's design for the church inherently included a major commitment to a local group of believers. Now, if you join a small group that does sermon-based curriculum, you're going to be studying Acts 2, 42 through 47 in depth this week. If you're not a part of a small group that does sermon-based curriculum, I encourage you to join one. There are five of them right now, I think. Yes, five of them. There are five of them right now. And I'm not beating up other small groups. If you're part of another small group, stay in that one. But I'm saying if you don't have a small group, come see me. I'll get you in one. I'll help you get in a group. Tuesday, Acts 4:32 through 37, another example of the church's major commitment to one another. Wednesday, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. We are made to complete one another as believers and it is contrary to the Christian faith to claim you don't need to be a part of the local body. That's the passage where it talks about, well, because I'm a hand and not a foot or whatever the words are, can't say I don't have any need of you. Paul says that's, that that's not right. You can't do that and, and be healthy. Thursday, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. The fivefold ministry can only happen in a community of faith, never with an individual. Friday, 1 John 4, 13 through 21. It is impossible to hate or disregard our brother in Christ and truly love God at the same time. That one's a tough one. 
You cannot despise the church, the bride of Christ, and say you love Christ, that you love the bridegroom. John says that's impossible. I want you to read that this week. And Saturday, same as Friday, James 2, 14 through 17, different passage, same concept. If you tell somebody, go and be warm and well-fed without doing something to help them, you don't really have faith. You can't do this with just disregarding people and not caring about them. See, this is love. This is loving one another. Amen? Let us pray. Father, over the last few weeks, we have dealt with the most, in my opinion, uh, difficult passage of Scripture outside of the Gospels as far as warnings or outside of the book of Revelation. Uh, Warnings for believers. Those ones that are more difficult are ones that Jesus said. But Lord, this one is so tough. And it's hard for us to to reckon how this would, would deal with us as individual believers. Father, I ask that today people might hear my heart, might hear the heart of Jonathan Edwards, might hear the heart of Dr. Hughes, that it isn't with sadistic glee that we preach these things, but it is to make, uh, to elevate grace to this amazing status, to elevate the church to this amazing status, which you have elevated it to. Lord, you died for the church. You died for the body. And Father, we pray that you would work inside of us and that we would be committed. Lord, I pray for the upcoming weeks as we move at the tail end of Hebrews 10 and into chapter 11. As the author describes how this actually works with examples of a life of faith. Lord, I pray that those examples would be not ones that make us feel like bums, but would be encouraging to us to help us to live out our faith in fresh and relevant ways. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said. Thank you.